The text is from 2 Corinthians chapter 2. 2 Corinthians 2. Remember, this is the fourth letter that Paul's written. We know that from different things he said in Corinthians 1 and 2. <clears throat> it appears that we don't have letters 1 and 3, but we know what's in them because of the context and the things that he's mentioned. In this part of uh, 2 Corinthians, he's explaining to the church why he didn't come to them when he told them he would, as planned. We read that part of the story in verses 1 through 4. He was extremely hurt and broken. He had told them that they needed to discipline a particular person. Kind of gave them an ultimatum, if you will. This was his painful letter, letter 3. The letter that was sent by Titus. And he was wondering what would happen if they would discipline him and stay part of the church of Jesus Christ, or if they would ignore Paul and this letter and continue on their own way. Well, last week we saw that he found out that they had been obedient, and he urged them to come to him in repentance for them to receive him as he came to them in repentance, that this man should be loved. So now in verses 12 and 13, we see that Paul is continuing his explanation of his travels. He's continuing to explain what happened and why he didn't come at the time he was supposed to be there. And ultimately, he says all of it worked out for God's glory. It all worked out because of Christ. Would you please stand for the reading of God's holy and inspired word? 2 Corinthians chapter 2, beginning in verse 12. When I came to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ, even though a door was opened for me in the Lord, my spirit was not at rest because I did not find my brother Titus there. So I took leave of them and went on to Macedonia. But thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To the one a fragrance from death to death, to the other a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? For we are not like so many peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity commissioned by God in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. Amen. Please be seated. Let us once again pray for wisdom. Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, we come to you now and pray that your word would be honored among us. We pray that you would strike a straight blow with this crooked stick. We pray that those who are afflicted would be comforted, and those who are comfortable would be afflicted. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. So Paul basically says, in a nutshell, whether in failure or success in my ministry, whether in my weakness or in my strength, the gospel is effective in Jesus Christ. He has confidence in the gospel. That's the title, confidence in the gospel. First, we'll see Paul's pastoral heart shining through. Secondly, we'll see Paul's confidence because he knows that success is because of Christ. And thirdly, we'll see Paul's confidence because he knows that the impact of his ministry 
is determined by God. And we'll conclude by really encouraging all of us to speak confidently for our Lord and our Savior. But let's look at the pastoral heart of Paul. We see that he's able to be open to his people, the people whom God has called him to, because he knows who he is in Christ and he knows who God is. Let's look at verse 12. He says, When I came to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ, even though a door was open for me in the Lord, he ended up leaving. He's telling the story of his travels again. He's saying that I meant to come at a certain time, but I went to Troas to preach. The Lord opened a door for me, meaning probably that they had received his word with great joy, but he decided not to stay. This is extremely unusual. If you read the book of Acts, whenever Paul has an open door, he jumps into it and he preaches the gospel. So it's significant that he says this time he didn't stay. God opened a door and he didn't stay. Well, he tells us why. He says in verse 13, my spirit was not at rest. I did not find my brother Titus there. So I took leave of them and went on to Macedonia. He had expected to find Titus there. The story is Titus took this painful letter to the church in Corinth, telling them that they needed to listen to him. They needed to discipline this man. And he was awaiting Titus' answer. He wanted Titus to bring news of what, was going to, what they were going to do. Did they receive the letter? Did they receive it and actually listen and obey Paul? Or did they reject him? We read in chapter 1 that Paul was so distressed by this whole situation. He was often in tears, much anguish of heart for the Corinthian church. And we see that playing out in this particular circumstance. He was awaiting the outcome of this letter and he could not stop thinking about it. We read already he was praying and grieving and hoping and crying for this church. With much anguish and many tears he said. And for this reason, his spirit was not at rest. He hoped Titus would bring him the news. Titus didn't show up. He was so emotionally connected with these people. His love for them was so deep that he had no peace. He felt such a burden for them that he had to leave this work. God had opened the door. He had to leave the work and find Titus. Find out what was going on in Corinth. There are some in our culture who think that a pastor should be a very professional, detached person. You might have had pastors like this in your life. They're professional, they're detached, they're not open to real relationship. They feel like to to sustain a prolonged ministry, they must do this. If they get too emotionally involved, if they become too vulnerable, they're going to be hurt, and of course they will. And the pain of ministry will wear them out. So their attitude is just to push back just a little bit, make sure there's always a little bit of a boundary. Never let people get too close. It's interesting we see none of this in Paul's ministry. None of it. He wasn't just giving people the gospel. He was giving them himself. He was all in with his flock. He loved them deeply. And yes, we read in this particular letter that he's often incredibly wounded by the people whom he serves. He's a true pastor, a true shepherd, and all true pastors strive to live this way. 
And as they pray and love the flock, they begin to love even the most cantankerous of the sheep. All of them are loved. This is Paul's attitude. He loves these people dearly. It's the attitude of a pastor. But you know what? It's not just the attitude of a pastor. It's the attitude of a Christian. As you pray for your family, as you pray for the people in your lives, you should also be willing to be vulnerable to those around you. To invest in them. To be transparent with people. To love from the heart. Paul says this is the way we all are to act. In Philippians 2, he says, Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a slave, being born in the likeness of men. Paul's saying that he acts the way he does because he's following in Christ's footsteps, and we all should act this way. We all should love deeply from the heart. Not just Paul, not just your pastor, not just your elders, all of us. Paul didn't hide his true feelings from people. He loved them. He was wise, certainly. We don't want to be unwise. We don't just say everything that's in our minds because we do what we do in love. But that love doesn't mean you set up boundaries and walls between yourself and other brothers in Christ. So basically, Paul says to them, I was so concerned about you. I love you so deeply. I just couldn't finish my work here. So I went on to find Titus. He had a pastor's heart. But Paul's incurs because he knows God well, and he knows that God always accomplishes his own sovereign purpose, despite his own failings and his own perceived successes. God will do his purpose and his work, even in his failures. And this is the second point. Paul is confident because he knows that his success is in Christ. His success comes because of Christ. Look in verse 14, he says, but thanks be to God. The but there means he's referring to this story he's previously told him. The open door, he didn't go through the door, he left because he was so concerned. But, he says, but thanks be to God. Who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession. It seems like he felt like he had failed in Troas. He should have stayed, he should have trusted He should have waited. And yet in the end he says, thanks be to God who worked it all out for good. He calls this a triumphal procession. And he states that Christ is always leading him in triumphal procession. Always. Christ always leads us in triumphal procession. In other words, he uses all the actions of Paul, all of his failures, all of his efforts for his own glory. And in the end, it will end in triumph. He accomplishes his holy purposes. Paul had lots of ups and downs in ministry. And you'll read about this later in 2 Corinthians, and you can see them in Acts as well. He was often thrown down into times of great prayer. He was often thrown in prison. He was often afflicted in so many other ways, physically, emotionally, spiritually. But in it all, he sees the hand of Jesus Christ leading him in triumphal procession. 
Now, this is a phrase, too, that I think I need to explain. Triumphal procession is referring to the Roman practice, a Roman general who's just had a great victory in some faraway land. And he brings the spoils from that land. He brings the people that he's conquered from that land. And he contacts the Roman Senate before he enters Rome. And he says, look at all I've done. I think I should be given a big parade And the Senate almost always says, yes, we'll do a parade. And he leads, the general leads his army, and he leads all the spoils of war, and he leads all the prisoners he's brought. He leads them all after this great victory through the city of Rome. And women are out there throwing flowers on top of them all. The priests are burning incense because it's a giant sacrifice of celebration and thanks to their gods. So Paul's leaning on this metaphor to say, Christ leads us in triumphal procession. There's been a great victory. And it wasn't because of me, Paul says. It was because of Jesus, our general, our king, our commander. He's defeated all of our enemies, sin, Satan, death. And in Christ... We who preach the gospel and teach the gospel, Paul is saying, we walk in triumph, even when we feel like failing. And this is a key for not just me as a pastor or Jerry as an elder, but for all of you. You might not always feel like you're doing everything right in your Christian life, in your Christian example, in your shining of your light before the world. Paul obviously didn't always feel like his ministry was effective, but he was confident that his God was faithful. His God would accomplish his purpose. His word would never return void. Because he was united with Christ. All this happened in Christ. All of his work is done in Jesus, for Jesus, and because of Jesus. And because of that, everything that he does is a fragrance. He's being led in a triumphal procession. It's a fragrance. He goes on to say, and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. Paul might still be leaning on the Roman kind of parade metaphor, but he might also be referring back to Leviticus, where over and over again in Leviticus, the offerings lifted up to God by the priests are called a sweet fragrance or a sweet aroma. Seventeen times in the book of Leviticus, God describes the sacrifices that are offered to him by the priests as, quote, a pleasing aroma to the Lord. And of course, these sacrifices all point to Christ, the most pleasing aroma to the Lord, the perfect sacrifice, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And Paul says that he is that sweet aroma. He's that fragrance. Do you remember in Romans 12? After Paul describes all of the work of God's salvation from chapters 1 through 11. In chapter 12, he switches gears and begins talking in Romans. He begins talking about, so what we do in light of that salvation. He says, in view of God's mercies, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. Holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. We all are to be a pleasing aroma. As we offer our lives as a sacrifice to God, we're a sweet aroma to people everywhere. And just as Paul felt like a failure in Troas, 
So when you feel like you are failing in shining your light, in being that sweet fragrance to the world, do not despair. Paul goes from two verses of despair, maybe, to about four or five chapters of praise be to God who sustains me in everything, who overrules whatever the situation is for his own glory and the ultimate advancement of his kingdom. So this gives Paul great confidence, knowing that he's following his commander, even in his failures, even in his limping weakness, he's following a conquering king. So you may sometimes, I think, if you're like me, you might actually have regrets about decisions that you've made in life. It seemed like God wanted me to stay in Troas, Paul said. The door was wide open, but I couldn't do it. I left. I was too burdened. And in the midst of our lives, we often make bad choices. Did I do that correctly? Should I have said that? Should I have gone to that place? Should I have made that decision? It's encouraging, isn't it, that if Paul could bumble, if the Apostle Paul could bumble parts of his life and still see Christ in it, so can we all. We who live by the word of God and faithfully and daily study the scriptures and who are faithfully in prayer and worship with our families and with our church, we strive to be wise and make good decisions. And if we mess up, Paul says, it's okay. Don't dwell on that. Look to your Savior. Look to Christ. Don't look back except to give God praise for everything. And often, even your worst decisions, your worst mistakes in life, in Christ, if you look back on them 20 years down the road and you look back and you go, oh, wow, that was a horrible decision I made there. What was going on? After, after a number of years, 10, 20, 30 years, you look back on that and you see God's work in it. God's work in it to accomplish whatever he's done in your life to this point. This is kind of what Paul's doing. He's looking back and saying, praise be to God. God never leaves or forsakes his children as we stumble along this wilderness journey on our way to the promised land. He's always with us. So be confident. You also are in a triumphal procession as you follow Jesus Christ. And God redeems even your biggest mistakes for his glory. Because he's loving, he's gracious, he's compassionate. He's slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love for his people. So like Paul, you have one job in life, and that's to glorify God. And the results of your efforts are completely in God's hands. And that's the third point. Paul's impact is determined by God. It gives him great confidence. gives every pastor great confidence. The results are in God's hands. I know some pastors say this, and I agree. Don't get angry at me. I didn't write the letter. I just deliver the mail. It's true. And as you share the gospel with others, it's similarly true. I once knew a man in the Air Force. He didn't really understand God's sovereignty. Actually, I didn't either. Uh, Who of us totally and completely understands anything about God perfectly? But he thought so much of himself and so little of God. He actually believed that if he didn't lead someone to Jesus Christ, 
get them to say the sinner's prayer in that moment, and then they went and died, that their blood really was going to be on his hands. So he would use fear and manipulation and all kinds of pressuring tactics to persuade people to pray the sinner's prayer with him. Fear of hell. Do you want to burn forever? Well, who wants to burn forever? And you continue to talk about them, those things, until they submit to you and pray this prayer. Certainly, we should feel a great responsibility to share the good news. I'm not saying we shouldn't. Of course we should. We should have compassion for those who are perishing. But our efforts are not the whole story. Have you all heard of Yogi Berra, an old baseball player and coach? He came up with these really wonderful little quips. He said, in baseball, it's 90% middle, 90% mental. The other half is physical. God's redemption of individuals, as we see it, humanly speaking, is kind of like that. We are instrument in God's hands, and we work as hard as we can for the Lord. We think it should probably be about 90% of us and about 10% of God, or the other half of God. And we should work that hard. We should work 100% to shine brightly, to send the fragrance of the gospel to everyone we meet. We should work with all of our might to shine for Christ. But the reality is, it's the opposite. He's the potter. We're the clay. He'll use our efforts for his purposes 100% of the time. So Paul says that the preachers of the word are an aroma of Christ to God among all people, among those being saved and those who are perishing. He's referring to their response to the gospel. As the gospel's preached, the response is going to be one of two things, always. To those who are being saved, it's an aroma of life. They will embrace it. To the rebellious and impenitent, it's a fragrance of death. There's nothing in the middle. Even though it might look the same on the outside, in your hearts, it's always one of those two things. Peter says the same thing. 1 Peter chapter 2, he says, For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I'm laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious. And whoever believes in him will never be put to shame. For those who love Christ, he's, cho- he's precious to you. He's a chosen cornerstone. He's your only Savior, your only hope. He says, for those who don't believe, it's the stone the builders rejected. But it's become the cornerstone. For those who don't believe, it's a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. Paul says the gospel is going to have two effects on people. They're either going to accept it and it's going to be a precious cornerstone in their lives or they're going to reject it and it reject it and it'll be a rock of offense to them. And Jesus always has this effect on people. Have you ever noticed in public, maybe not in Greenville as much, but maybe in Greenville, when you mention the word Jesus in any way that's reverent, in any way that's worshipful, people recoil from that. They're used to hearing the word Jesus used as a curse word, of course. And nobody cares about that. But when you use the word Jesus in a sentence, giving praise to your Savior, it has an effect on people, doesn't it? And those who are perishing, it's like rubbing salt into their wound. 
So the preacher, like Paul, needs to remember that the results are in God's hands. You are also ministers of the gospel. You go out into the world. You're equipped for ministry. So you do what I do. You're faithful in prayer. As Paul said to Timothy, you study hard to show yourself approved. You study the word. And then you preach the word. You teach the word. You share the gospel. And you trust God will do the work. It takes the pressure off. The gospel coming from your mouth will either be a a fragrance of life or a fragrance of death. So this knowledge gives all shepherds and preachers and teachers and all Christians confidence to boldly proclaim the gospel. Oh, it was about seven years ago I was selected to be a colonel in the Air Force. And it was the Lord's work. I'm not boasting But when I was selected for that rank, so there's two kinds of colonels, and everyone knows this. I mean, it's there are very few colonels in any of the services, but there's still two kinds of colonels in the Air Force. There's the colonel, the five percent of colonels, who actually are going to go on to become generals, and they know who they are because of the timing and everything else. It's impossible for the other ninety-five percent to be that. So ninety-five percent of us know that we're never going to get promoted again. It's a wonderful rank. It's a good rank. It's a high rank. But you know that this is it. This is all you're ever going to get. And there was an old grizzled colonel who called me into his office. And I remember this so clearly. It was so helpful for the next years of my service. And he said, listen, you're never going to get promoted again. And I said, yeah, I know. He said, you've reached your terminal rank. And I said, yeah, I know. And he said, This is actually so valuable to the Air Force because the other 5%, they're still in the rat race. They're they're tempted not to tell the whole truth, to please their boss, their generals who are going to be promoting them. They're tempted to kind of make everything look right. He said, that's not your job here. And on the staff at Air Combat Command, we had about 20, 25 colonels, and about 22 of us were in this position where this is our last promotion. He said, your job is to just say it. The general doesn't need anyone to blow air on him. He doesn't need anyone to to polish his boots. He doesn't need anyone to to tell him half-truths. He needs people to say it. Just tell him the truth. That's what he wants. So colonels are people who just say it. You and I, in our knowledge of Christ, we should be like that. There's nothing that we need more than Christ. We've reached our terminal rank. We are called just to speak the truth, to say what is right. Number one, because you work for God alone. Watering down the message of the gospel isn't helping anyone. If you really care for someone, you're going to tell them the truth of their situation. It's popular in some churches, of course, the The Joel Osteen kind of churches, we don't talk about hell. We don't talk about sin. makes people uncomfortable. They might not come back. Brother and sister, the gospel is an offense to a dying world. People are always offended by it. And to those perishing, it's a fragrance of death. So just speak it. Just speak the truth as lovingly as you possibly can. You are an ambassador for Jesus Christ. 
So when God puts someone new in front of your face or a friend, an old friend in front of your face, take a moment and pray and say, God, help me. Help me to speak this truth in love. You work for him, so just say it. When you go to the doctor, if you have a serious problem and you go to the doctor, do you really want the doctor to kind of hold back and not tell you what's really going on? No, even if it's the worst news possible, you want to know all of it. Just tell me. Don't hide anything. This is our job as Christians. We need to tell the people truth as lovingly as we can. Because we work for God alone. Secondly, remember that the results are up to God. You don't know who's perishing. You don't know who's being saved. It's God's business. Your business is to love people. To love them with your life. To come alongside them. To show them hospitality. To talk to them. To live life with them. And to tell them the truth. Knowing that the results are in God's hands gives you great confidence. And knowing that Jesus will not lose a single one of those the Father has given him gives us great confidence. So don't shrink away. Don't shrink away when you feel the weight of sharing the gospel. It's nothing to be afraid of. You're not going to mess up. Just open your mouth. Talk about Jesus. He uses broken vessels like me and like you to accomplish this work. So do it. He says later in 2 Corinthians 4, We have this treasure, the gospel, in jars of clay. Meaning that we are going to get broken. We're going to mess this up sometimes. Why does he do this? To show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not us. And that's why at the end of this verse 16, he says, who is sufficient for these things? Who can handle the weight of this responsibility? The answer, of course, is none of us. Apart from Christ. So let's conclude with this exhortation to all of us to speak Christ, to speak in Christ. He says, we're not like peddlers of God's word. We're not like some colonel bucking for a promotion. We're just going to say things in a good way. No, we are men of sincerity. We've been commissioned by God in the sight of God. We speak in Christ. Pastors and teachers, of course, should be men of sincerity, commissioned by God to do this work with the knowledge that God is always watching over them. He's watching over the secret things that they ponder in their hearts. He's watching over their actions, the things that they do in private and in public to ensure that they speak in Christ. Speak the gospel. Live the gospel. And this is true for ministers, but it's equally true for you. Speak the gospel, the truth of God's word. So if I asked you to tell me what the gospel is, many of you might start tap dancing a little bit. Not all of you, of course. Let's talk about the gospel because it's truth. And we all need to know the truth, all of us, whether you're saved or unsaved. You need to know the gospel. It encourages your soul. Because the gospel truth is clear. It starts with the knowledge that we're all dead in our sins and trespasses. As Ephesians 2 says. Or Ezekiel says that we're like people with stony hearts. We need a new heart. Or we're like dead bones in a field that need life breathed into them. 
Or Jesus tells Nicodemus that you're blind. You can't even see the kingdom of God until you're born again. We're all dead in our sins. And in addition to the original sin passed down to us from Adam, we all continue to sin. We've sinned so much and so frequently that we are a stench to God. Your deception and indulgence and pride and rebellion are repulsive to a holy and righteous God. He created you, and you presume to defy him every second of every day, doing your own will, worshiping your own things. And the problem is you can't ever hope to be good enough to please him. Your efforts are like a child shooting an arrow at the sun. It's never going to come close. And what's more, you probably hardly even try. You break every commandment every day in thought, word, and deed. You have many other gods in your heart before God. And as soon as you say, no, I don't, well, think about what you spend your time, what you spend your talents and your money on. Some people hold good things as idols, your marriage, your family, your kids, your work, your money, your success, your pleasure, Tennessee football. You despise God as the only God. You want to worship other things. You despise his word. You blaspheme his name. You desecrate his day all the time. There's murder in your heart. There's lust for other people. You deceive and steal and lie and covet and you cannot help it. Your situation is hopeless and you know it. You cannot stop. There's no hope for any of us apart from a work of the spirit. You must be born again. You must have a new life, a new creation. And all who truly come to him, he will never cast out. You must repent. You must pray. And pray with all your heart. So I proclaim to each of you today a free offer of salvation in Jesus Christ. All of you. He will not tolerate your half-hearted, fickle desires to... Get your ticket to heaven, as some billboard in front of a church says down the road. He's not your cosmic waiter just waiting to help your smallest little inclination to turn his way. That's not how he describes lordship at all in the Gospels, and that's not how Paul preaches. If you're going to come to him, you must come as a slave. You must completely die to yourself. You must take up your cross and follow him. You must count the cost. You must give up everything in in order to gain the pearl of great price. How do you do this? It's hopeless. The Holy Spirit must do his work. Pray to God. Whitfield says he prayed for two months. And God changed his heart. And when God changes you, you will know it. Your desires, your aspirations, all of your hopes, what you love, it all changes. It's a work of God. He gives you faith and you really repent. He gives you a true love for him, a real desire, a new heart. And when he answers, you'll know it. So pray and turn your heart to God. Plead for his deliverance. Turn to Christ. Remember who is calling you. It's the one who died on the cross. It's the one who said, come to me, all who are weak and who are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. 
Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble at heart. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. Little boys, if you're here, look at me for just a moment. Turn to Jesus. Little girls, turn to Jesus today. Teenagers, college students, turn to Jesus. Mothers and fathers, middle-aged people, turn to Jesus. Old man, old woman, grieving widow, turn to Jesus. Everyone in this room, turn to Jesus today. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we do thank you so much that you have shed your love in our hearts. All we who know you give you great just praise. We're bursting with joy to think what you have done to change our, our sinful desires into desires that please you. The things that we once loved, now we hate because you hate them. Whatever you you love, we love now, and we praise you for that work. We thank you for our new hearts. We thank you for eyes to see. We thank you that in Jesus' name, your word always accomplishes its purpose. We pray that you would also be with those who do not know you, whether you're watching this, this sermon from home or whether you are in this room. Lord, we thank you that you are moving in people's hearts, and we pray that you would bring salvation to the lost, wherever they might be found, wherever my voice might be heard, that your Holy Spirit would do his work, all to your glory, all to your honor, and that you would give each person here the boldness to speak the truth about Jesus Christ in love to all whom they know and all whom they meet. That our love for Christ would consume us. That we would live for others and not for ourselves. All to the glory of your holy name. In Jesus' name, amen.